Welcome back, dear listeners, and happy Friday. And today is actually a Friday. This is Charlotte, Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith, and we are continuing in our Jonah series. Today is episode three of our Jonah series. As always, there is a PowerPoint and worksheet that goes with this session if you would like to check that out at our website, evidenceforfaith.org. You can also help support this broadcast and keep it free by becoming a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. And without further ado, here is Michael and the third episode of Jonah. Tonight we're going to be covering a whole one verse. <laughs> Those of you who know me well, what's unusual about that? <laughs> so, um, but we're going to be doing tonight Jonah, and it's the it's the really controversial verse tonight. It's it's one seventeen of Jonah, the most controversial verse to many uh, people having to do with the entire Bible. A lot of people just can't get past this verse, as we talked about in the first lesson. But um, we're going to be getting into this, and but let's open in prayer. We'll get started, okay? Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful day you've given us and for, Lord, the health that you've allowed us to have all so that we can come here. Lord, I thank you for each person that's come, and I ask, we all ask, Lord, that you just speak to us, that your spirit, Lord, teach us and add to our faith. But, Lord, um, just really with whatever prayer requests are going that everyone has here, that, Lord, you would answer our prayers also and that you would hear us, which I know you do. You're always around us, and that's one of the characteristics of you, how you are everywhere, and you already know everything, and you have a plan for each of us. And we just ask tonight, Lord, it's this part of the plan of being here tonight, which I believe is part of your sovereign nation of, of how you do things, that, Lord, uh, you just speak to us and teach us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in going with Jonah... As we continue, this is the third lesson, and these are being recorded. That's why I'm wearing this goofy thing. Um, these are being recorded. I'll be putting them on CD. Um, if anybody ever misses one, then we can, you can get those and stuff like that. But tonight, um, that's funny. Why didn't that turn on? Let's see. Let's try again. There we go. Uh, tonight, as we look at this, as I say, we're looking at Jonah 1.17. And on the introduction of this whole, um, this whole course, I, I told you about that on a couple of different atheist websites, this is the verse that they say is a good reason not to believe in the Bible, um, 117. And many people do doubt the Bible simply because of this verse. Um, so the fishy tale tonight, well, let's take a look at it. Let's go into Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. And as we see it, it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I mean, how many people say right there, you're in a fairy tale stuff. This can't possibly be true. There's no way, for one, a fish could swallow a person um, whole. And second, there's no way a person could live for three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. So why should we even believe you? Well, you know, there's a lot of things that we often take for granted. Is uh, we Christians, I'm speaking of, we'll many times take passages in Scripture and that seem a little obscure or something that seems to be hard to believe. And we just think, okay, it's a miracle. I'm just going to call it a miracle because what's a miracle? You know, science can't explain an event, so we call it a miracle. And miracles do happen. Um, I remember a few years ago watching uh, ABC News, uh, the evening news, the world thing. There was a guy who was, I think it was sky, um, he was washing skyscraper windows in Chicago and his safety thing gave way and he fell all the way down to the pavement and he was like about oh 30 40 stories up went all the way down uh, and survived broke most of the bones in his body but he survived it and the doctors even I remember listening to this and the doctors saying we can't explain it he should be dead it's a miracle or another time I remember reading in the paper about a person who was skydiving and jumped out of the airplane and was falling, free falling, pulled the ripcord, nothing happened, pulled the emergency, nothing happened, and landed on blacktop and survived it without any major serious injuries. And the doctors all said, this, it's a miracle. Miracles do happen. But I can't really explain those. That's why we call them miracles. But 
Sometimes, looking at something like this, we think, okay, it's got to be a miracle. And it very well could be. Let me say that to start with. This could be something that totally God, in His infinite wisdom and His majesty, designed just for this one moment in human history of a special type of fish to come up and swallow Jonah, and that he was able to live in it for three days and three nights. It, maybe that is exactly what happened as a miracle. But you know something? Sometimes we attribute things as a miracle when there actually is a scientific way of explaining it. And what do I mean by that? Well, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. This very well could be a, just a, a one-in-a-lifetime thing that, that God just invented or created a fish what it looked like or anything, we don't know, but create a fish that did this. But you know something? This is not that hard to believe just using marine biology. So that's what I want to talk about. Now, a lot of people wonder, well, was it a whale? You know, could this have been a whale? You know, blue whales, if you've ever seen even pictures of them, they're huge. It's the largest animal today on the planet. Um, these things get over 120 feet, or around 120 feet longer. So, I mean, they're huge. They get really big. And, uh, oh, something that big with a big mouth like that should be able to swallow a person. And if you've ever noticed, if you ever read the King James Version, you know, we're using primarily the English Standard, which is a word-for-word -word translation. But if you go back to the English Standard Version, Jesus talks about this story, and Matthew records it in his Gospel, and it says this. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40 says, For as Jonas, by the way, this is Jesus speaking, For as Jonas, that's Jonah, was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's the King James Version. So some people say, well, it says in the New Testament, it's a whale. It says in the Old Testament, in the book of Jonah, it says a great fish. You know, well, which one is it? Well, let's go back to looking at this, uh, this word here that we see from the King James Version. Um, the word that's used here in the New Testament for whale, remember this is not written in English, this is written in Greek. So if we go back and we look at the Greek word that's used here in this, that the King James uh, um, transcribers, the people who are working on a translation, that they took studying the Greek to put it into English, they used the word whale. It's the word ketos. It's the word ketos. That's the Greek word here. And a definition of it? Uh, ketos, you find this word quite often in Greek literature. Um, sometimes it describes sea monsters. Uh, sometimes it's a huge, gigantic fish. And it is the word, ketos is the word in Greek that can be used for whale. So since this is written in New Testament, Greek, some people just, okay, here we get fish and whale. But the King James people went ahead and put whale here. So judging by the size of the whales, they just basically just put it that way. If you go and you study, I actually look at about, I think I looked up about 30 different translations on this, this passage and uh, in, in Matthew that we're talking about, Matthew 12, and only a few of them, only about five or six, actually use the word whale. Most of them, even in our New Testaments today, many translations, uh, New American Standard, it's a fish, uh, English Standard, it's a fish, et cetera, et cetera. Very seldom do you find the word whale there. So, because of that, though, let's take a, we're going to look at this tonight. Could it possibly be a whale? Well, what is the word then in the Hebrew, in the book of Jonah? What was the word that was used there? It's the word dog. Now, dog is not, woof, woof, woof. You know, here's come Fido or something like that. Dog in Hebrew, in the ancient Hebrew language, is the definition of a fish. It's not the word for whale. It's specifically the word for fish. So in Jonah's book, as what we're studying, the actual word, going back to the Hebrew, is the word for fish, not the word for whale. Because of that, that's why many of the, um, these more modern translations we have, even when it gets into the Matthew account, because the Old Testament, Jonah, uh, Jesus is, is talking about Jonah, uh, go and they use the word fish there. King James is different. Um, the Jubilee 2000, I think that translation uses the word whale. Um, the Catholic Bible, the Reims-Dewey Bible, has whale. Uh, but most others, they use the word fish here. But tonight... We're going to explore all possibilities. So, could it have been a whale? Well, to answer that, see, we're, this is fun. Three, this, is, this is getting fun because this is marine biology. Um, if you don't want to come with me down to the Florida Keys at Easter, which you all can, you know, if you're over 14 years old, you can come with me. And I will 
teach you um, stuff on marine biology down there. But here we are, stuck up here in, in the north woods. There's not an ocean around. Um, I get to teach a little bit of marine biology anyway, in a Bible thing. I can't get, for me, it can't get any better than this. I'm getting to teach Bible and marine biology in the same lesson. To me, this is like heaven. So <laughs> could this have been a whale? Well, let's take a look at it. I don't know if you're, what you're familiar with in whales and stuff, but there's basically two types of whales. Whales are categorized into two parts um, based upon their anatomy. There are the baleen whales, like the humpback, the blue whale, the right whale, um, the gray whale. Those are all baleen whales. And then you have the toothed whales, like the picture I'm showing here. This is a sperm whale. Um, orcas, dolphins, they fit into that. They have teeth. And so there's two different types here. Now, um, baleen whales, um, what makes a baleen whale a baleen is a baleen whale has, this is a, a picture here I'm showing right now of a, of a large right whale. Its mouth is wide open and you can see these bristles sticking down. This is called baleen. Baleen is very hard protein. It's like a super stiff uh, mustache that's grown internally inside their mouth that these whales, baleen whales, all have this. So the way that they do this, the way that they feed, because they don't have teeth, they don't have any teeth. They have this, and they have a big tongue. Yes, whales have a tongue. Big tongue and this baleen, these bristles that stick down. So when they're feeding, what they do is they go in and they eat very, very small things. Shrimp, um, krill, small fish, they eat really tiny little foods. Even though these whales are huge, their food is really tiny in size. They open up their huge mouth, they take a big mouthful of everything that's in the water there, just scoop it all up into their mouth. Then they close their lips and bring down this baleen and let this sit down. Then what they do is they, with their tongue, they push the water out that they've just swallowed. The water moves through these bristles extremely easily and just moves out. And what happens is anything that is solid gets stuck in the bristles. And then they swallow that down. It's the same thing that you have all done at some point in your life, probably in childhood, when you had to eat mashed potatoes and peas at the same time, where you mix the mashed potatoes in the peas together. And then remember doing this, you take a big spoonful, put it in your mouth, close your mouth, uh, or close your teeth together, look at your little brother or little sister, lean over them, and then with your tongue, you push the mashed potatoes out, coming out of your mouth, and the peas can't go through that, and it stays inside, then you swallow those down. And don't look at me like that, because I know you've all done something like this. Maybe it wasn't peas, maybe it was corn, but I know you've all done this. This is a part of childhood that we all go through. So don't look at me like, I never did that. Yeah, right, uh-huh. Well, that's how baleen whales feed. Now, what's really fascinating is they don't, they do not have any teeth. So Jonah, if it was swallowed by a whale, if he was swallowed by a whale, he's not going to be chewed on because these are bristles. They're just soft. Actually, they're not that soft, but they're not going to tear flesh. Um, down on the marine biology trip in the past, we've gone to a place where they, they have uh, baleen uh, sitting out. It's, it's dried and stuff, and we, we've held around, passed it around. It's very stiff. It's just uh, shards of like protein, but they have no teeth. That is what they have, this internal mustache, if you will. But there's a problem with a baleen whale. Because their mouth, or, or what their diet is, is so small, their gullet, or their esophagus, is really tiny. It's really small. Uh, even like a blue whale, now here's a picture I'm showing you of a blue whale, showing you to scale to like a scuba diver, an adult male down here, like a six foot tall male, um, in the size of this compared to an average blue whale you got to think, wow, this thing is gigantic. The size of its mouth could easily swallow the person. Inside the mouth, yes, no problem there. But trying to get them down past the mouth, there's a problem. Because all baleen whales, all baleen whales, just like the blue whale, their, uh, uh, their esophagus, their pharynx, the diameter of it is only about four to five inches. So a baleen whale, like that blue whale I just showed you in the picture, its esophagus is only this big around, even that, that gigantic size of it. But their food is so tiny, that's why. They don't need a big gullet. They have just a small thing like this. And it may be, in a blue whale, a really big blue whale, may be able to expand that to 10 inches. You are not going to get an adult person through that. As a matter of fact, in the 1930s, at the 
Museum of Natural History in New York City, or I'm sorry, it was in the 1920s. Um, a, one of the curators there decided, he was reading Jonah and he thought, let's try this. So he actually ordered a ship to go out and get a, uh, a large whale and to bring in to the museum the esophagus. So they cut the esophagus out of one of these whales that they, you know, there's countries still doing whaling. And they brought in the esophagus and he actually tried this in his office, he wrote about this, that he tried and tried to see how much he could fit through the thing. And he just could not. There was no way he could move, pull that thing over even both of, he couldn't get it up to his knees. So he concluded there's no way a baleen whale can do this. You just can't swallow a person. So there's the problem with baleen whales. Uh, esophagus is way too tiny. So swallowing, getting him in the mouth is no problem. But getting him um, down in, into the esophagus or, you know, it says it's staying in the belly, like internally inside the, the fish for so many days, uh, it's not going to happen. So it's not obviously a blue whale or some type of baleen whale. Well, there's the tooth whales, Michael. What about those? Well, tooth whales, yeah, like the sperm whale, yeah, they have a very large uh, esophagus or gullet. It's big, much larger. And also, it has in the back, behind that, there are large laryngeal air spaces. Because remember, these are mammals. They're not fish. They have lungs. So they inhale air, and they blow the air back out then. Um, so they have these large air spaces that are beyond that. And so that is that works. And legends do say that there have been people swallowed by sperm whales sperm whales. Um, not so with an orca. If an orca was to try and do it, an orca could not really swallow a person whole. But sperm whales, yeah, it possibly could because if you sit and you study the anatomy of a sperm whale, the esophagus actually gets to be 20 inches in diameter. That same curator I told you about at the museum back in the 1920s ordered also a sperm whale's esophagus. He was able to pass right through it. He put it on the ground and actually pulled it over the top of him and he went through it. So it is possible a person could be swallowed um, by a sperm whale. As a matter of fact, many legends say there, there have been. Probably, I mean, back in the days of whaling, it was, you know, uh, sperm whales, we've all heard of Moby Dick, read, um, was it Melville, uh, wrote that and talks about whales and how they attack boats and, and they do attack boats. That, that, that's history, that's happened many times. And there have been legends or stories about people being swallowed. Uh, of these, the most famous is a guy by the name of James Bartley, that in the latter 1800s, he was supposedly on this ship, the sailing vessel. Uh, this was published in newspapers all through England. Um, he was on a whaler that was called the Star of the East. And it says that um, what, the way the story goes is he was a whaler, James Bartley was a whaler, and you would get lowered in these boats. If you've, ever, if you've read Moby Dick, you know this, or if you've seen the movies or something, or the, the tale about the whale ship Essex and stuff that's been out on the, the uh, movie theaters within the last year. These guys would go out and harpoon these things, and they get pulled along. Sometimes the whale turns, attacks the boat, smashes the boat. And in this case, with James Bartley, supposedly, the whale turned and swallowed him right before his shipmates in the other boats. They all saw it. They chased the whale, continued chasing it, and they killed the whale. But it was like uh, over 18 hours later when they finally killed the whale. And then what they did is they, this was down by the Falkland Islands, South, uh, South Atlantic Ocean. And what they did then is they pulled it up uh, and started to cut the thing open. For one, they had to get their shipmate out to give him a Christian burial. Um, but they, they're whalers. This is what they do. They kill the whales and they chop them up and use them for different things. And as they cut open into the whale and they got into the internal organs where the stomach was, they could see the outline of the, the person in the shape of the soft tissue of the stomach. And they took a knife and just sliced it to get the body out so they could bury him. When he came out, they were all amazed because he was still alive. He was unconscious but alive. Now, being in a whale for 18 hours, exposed to the gastric juices and the digestive enzymes, he didn't look quite the same. Um, they said at first he wasn't even breathing, but they, he was moving around, but they revived him somehow. Um, but he was permanently scarred. His eyesight was really poor after that. He had lost all of his hair. His skin had been burned by the gastric juice. It's hydrochloric acid, an enzyme called pepsin. And it burned the skin and um, denatured the skin. He was scarred. It says he was scarred for the rest of his life. 
and had very poor vision for the rest of his life. As a matter of fact, as the story goes, when he came back, he never went to sea again. He came back uh, to England and one of the churches, um, what was the town? Um, I wanna say Glasgow, but that's not right. I can't think of the name of the famous town in England where there was a church and a pastor went up and hired this guy to sit outside, gave him a place to live and everything just outside his church. And they put a sign over him, the modern Jonah. And he died a beggar, uh, lived many years after that. Now, there are some people who say this is a totally made up story. But the thing is, it is written in a lot of, in a lot of um, things. Matter of fact, there was a display at the Smithsonian even on this about James Bartley. And there's other stories too, but this is the most famous one because it was documented in so many newspapers and stuff. Whether it happened or not, I don't know. I don't know, but we do know it is scientifically feasible for a person to be swallowed whole by a whale because people have been swallowed by whales. Whales, sperm whales, eat giant squid. They don't chew their food, even though they got the teeth. Sperm whales do not chew food, they swallow it whole. So as it says in the Bible, this man was swallowed. It seems like it could fit. So scientifically that is possible. If the James Bartley story, and some people do say it is, it is an authentic story, you can read about it. And there's a couple of other stories that are like this, that people say back in the 1700s and 1800s that somebody got swallowed by a whale and actually lived through it, or some didn't. But uh, you could be swallowed by a whale, possibly and survive. Scientifically, it could be. But there are some other possibilities let's look at. There's one that's called the Jewfish. Um, this is a photograph I took down in the Bahamas of a Jewfish. Um, Actually, they're not calling them Jewfish anymore. It's not politically correct. They're calling them giant groupers. I've always called it a Jewfish. Um, Anephilus itajara is the scientific name of this thing. These things get huge. They live in um, deep water, not super deep, within uh, scuba diving range. They have a tendency of sitting in caves um, and in sunken vessels. And Skin Diver Magazine actually had an article one time I remember reading about a scuba diver who got swallowed by a Jewfish. It's a gigantic sea bass is what it is. They go around 700 pounds. I mean, this is a big fish. I used to work at the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. We had a Jewfish there, a small one. Ours weighed only 300 pounds. Um, and it was a tiny one. Even so, the thing was like this big. It was like, you know, it just, it was under six feet. It was over, over five feet long, but it was gigantic in girth. It was a huge thing. And I used to love to play with that thing. Um, grouper, giant groupers in particular, these Jewfish are extremely territorial. And often what I would do after hours at the Shedd Aquarium, <laughs> this is bad, but I did. Um, we, we did classes at the aquarium where we would take mirrors, hand mirrors, and put them up next to tanks uh, of certain fish and watch the fish's reaction. Now we didn't do it with groupers because they're very territorial. They don't like other groupers to be in their space. And this is in a, in a tank, in an aquarium. But I would sometimes at nighttime, or at the, well sometimes at nighttime, but when the aquarium was closed, I would take one of these mirrors. I love to go up to the grouper, giant groupers tank, our Jewfish, and just stick the mirror there. I made sure there's nobody around, but I would put this up there. His uh, operculums, the gill covers, would flare out, his spines would stick up, and he would just get right up next to the glass. And then, this is why I did it, they grind their back teeth together, it makes a thundering sound. And in the aquarium at nighttime when there's nobody there, it echoes down the, the, the corridors, it's really cool. And it's just a grinding sound, you know, really loud, like a little roar of a thunder. And I'm just having a fun time doing this. And I remember one time when I was doing this, and it, it was really loud, and I, I thought I heard somebody coming, so I took the mirror down, and, and the person says, did you hear that? I said, yeah, I think it's the heating registers. I think there must be some, some air in the pipe or something, you know. <laughs> oh, okay. There it is again. Yeah, it's got to be the registers or something. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, yeah, you can have fun with these guys. But they do swallow people. There are, it's rare, but it does happen that they swallow a person. So if you're scuba diving or going around and you come across a cave and here's a giant grouper in one, they can be very aggressive and swallow you. And the thing is, they always swallow you head first is basically what they do. So you're late. It's only like about six, seven feet long. So you can't get the whole body inside, so the legs are sticking out. And then what they do, now you're gonna understand why they call it a Jewfish, you'll understand this in a second. After they swallow a person, what they do is they swim towards the surface, go up to the surface and they spit them out and then they chase them around before going back down. But see, swallowing a person, spitting them out, fits like the Jonah story. Jonah was a Jew, thus the name 
chew fish. That's how it goes. But I can tell you, this is probably not the, the, the creature who did it because there's no place to hold a man for a couple days. You're only halfway in. Um, I would love to see a picture. I've never seen a photograph of somebody swallowed by one, but I've heard divers getting swallowed by it, and I, I think that would be really funny <laughs> to see. Anyway, as long as it doesn't happen to me. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so it's not the Jewfish. Well, what about a great white shark? Mmm, yeah. Great white sharks are pretty big fish. Um, they can go to about uh, uh, 25 feet long. They can weigh at over 2,500 pounds. It's a honking big fish. 25 feet. So I brought a rule here tonight to try and get an idea of how far 25 feet is. You want to hold the end of that? We'll just see how far. I don't know how far this thing goes. I'm at 12. <laughs> and where are we at? We're at 22. So 25, this thing's 25 foot wide. This is 25 foot wide. Can you imagine being next to a, a shark, the width of this room? You let go. Thank you. That's a honking big shark. 25 feet. Um, so yeah, it's a big thing. And they have honking big teeth too. And these white sharks, uh, we all know the movie Jaws and books and stuff like this. Do you know that they actually have been known to swallow dolphins and people? It is true. There's documented cases. Well, dolphins, they will sometimes swallow dolphins. That's part of their food. But there have been cases where, uh, where great whites, large ones, have actually swallowed a person. Instead of biting them in half or some, actually, they were so large, they swallowed the person whole. It has happened. There are some cases like that. As a matter of fact, um, their digestive tract is so large, it can accommodate a person. A 25-footer, you can fit inside that, inside their stomach. You can. And so it's possible that can happen. Um, and it is possible you could be swallowed. It is possible. Scientifically, it is possible if you're swallowed at the surface and you've got a big gulp of air with you, scientifically, it is possible for a person to have lived, for, for a person to live a couple of days inside a great white. They're not going to be in good condition coming out. But it is possible for them to be still alive. Scientifically, they could. As a matter of fact, two marine biologists, Keith Robinson and Donna uh, Parham, uh, they work at SeaWorld in San Diego, and they wrote a paper back in 2002 on this whole Jonah book and about specifically this verse. Is there anything scientifically we could say? And they proposed that, yes, they believed that a great white shark was probably what swallowed Jonah because we do know that they can do that kind of thing. So, well, so Jonah was swallowed by Jaws, huh? Mm, possibly. Let me give you another one. Have you ever heard of this? Carcharodon megalodon, or sometimes called megalodon. This is also a shark. Uh, hopefully, and I say hopefully because we've not explored the oceans, hopefully it is extinct. But I've given you the size of this picture here of one of these, and a six-foot man down here at the bottom, you can see how big these are. These sharks, which did roam the planet, we know that they were in the Mediterranean Sea because we've found fossil evidence there. These things, which I hope are extinct, we believe got up to be 120 feet long. How long is that? You know these big charter buses, 55 passenger charter buses? Those are uh, 55 feet. See, if you put two of those together, that's 110. That's about the length of one of these. Those of you who have been to Fort Wilderness, our dining hall at Fort Wilderness is only 90 feet long. So it wouldn't even fit in there, the largest one. Um, these guys get really big. Matter of fact, their mouths, this is a picture I'm showing you here. This is from Zoo Books. Um, yeah, Zoo Books, but it was a great picture. Um, but here you can see like a, uh, uh, a megalodon here getting ready to swallow a car. As a matter of fact, there are big enough ones that could swallow 15 passenger vans. They're huge. They were huge creatures. This is a normal, like a maximum size great white compared to that like. But it gives you an idea. And we know that they were big because we have their teeth. The remains of the teeth have, um, have been found. Matter of fact, I have a couple of specimens myself of uh, megalodon teeth. Um, I've got one like, um, this is actually a museum copy. This is the one I use for presentations because the other ones are hundreds of dollars. Um, don't take those around too often. But I've got one that's actually larger than this. And look at the size of this in, in my hand. Now, a, 25, or a big great white is something like this. And this is not a full-grown 
megalodon. There's teeth larger than this. So we know they got big, pretty good size. And so just judging from these two teeth here, you can see these things got huge, gigantic. Here's an artist's rendition of, of how big like some of these things would have been. Like there's a fishing trawler there. Um, and you could see the size of this shark that would be next to it. I know the Shark Week on the Discovery Channel did a special, was it a year ago or two years ago? They did a whole thing on Megalodon. Um, is it possible and stuff like this that these things could still be alive? There's a lot, if you, if you go to Google, type in Megalodon, you're going to see a ton of pictures and images and stuff that come up. Most of them are faked things, but there are, uh, there are fossils that these things did live. There's no question about it. They were living on this planet. Uh, and whether they still are, we don't know. There is one controversial picture that was taken by the Nazis, the German Navy during World War II, um, with a U-boat hunting pack, two U-boats traveling side by side, and two massive shark fins, which would have been the dorsal fin and the uh, caudal or the tail fin, in between, and these things were standing, these fins, apparently in this picture, looked like they're standing about 20 feet high. I mean, this thing, if, if that was, if that true, if it's a true picture, that would have been a megalodon. That would have been a big fish. But we don't know. Um, but we do know that they get big. Here's a picture. This is a very, very famous picture. Um, I took this from a book called um, Shadows of the Sea. It's one of the best shark books you can ever read. Um, the gigantic jaws of Carcharodon megalodon reconstructed from fossil teeth. This was when the like 1920s Museum of Natural History. And you can see they put the, the teeth together. Uh, sharks don't have any bones. So you're not going to see the, the skeletal remains. They don't have bones. They have cartilage. So the only thing that really survives of a shark is its teeth. And by putting the teeth together, they can use, there's mathematical formulas that you use with shark teeth, and you can determine the width and the height and also the length of the shark. And so this one here, this is not a full-grown one, but you can see there's one, two, three, four, five, six men that could have been swallowed at once. <laughs> These things are big. So, and like I say, the teeth of these things, look at the size of that. That's a real one. I'm showing you on a picture here with a great white tooth over on the side, just like what I was holding up here, but this is a huge one. And look how, how big this is in a person's hand. These things got huge. And, and like I say, using math, there are things that uh, marine biologists we use frequently in studying sharks, and um, you can tell a lot by the shark. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but you can tell the species of shark if you can just have a tooth. Sharks all have individual type of teeth. And if you've ever heard somebody being attacked by a shark, these teeth fall out all the time. So when a person gets bit or something, a lot of times they, the shark leaves a, a souvenir and embedded in the person, they have to extract it out, dissect the thing out. But when we get one, and then they, it takes them a while to figure out, but then they will usually tell you what species was the, the culprit who attacked. All you need is, the, is a tooth. Because with the tooth, they'll even tell you how big the shark was. Because what you do, you can take these teeth and measure them. Now I'll show you a chart that's made for great whites. And what you do is you measure the enamel of the tooth in millimeters, the height of it, um, how tall this is in millimeters, and that will tell you the length of the shark because sharks grow proportional to their teeth. There's a mash, uh, uh, just a ratio that works with sharks like that. And there's different ones for different sharks for different species. And by uh, marine biologists, we use these kind of things. Whenever we see a shark tooth, we pull out the thing, do the measurements and stuff, and you can do this. You can also measure um, on the width at the base, and it will tell you how wide the shark's mouth was. So there's a lot of information you can get. Um, give a shark tooth we can identify what shark it is. It's fascinating how these whole science works with these uh, shark teeth and still. By having these megalodon teeth, they can pretty much get an idea of how big these things must have been. So it is feasible that a man could have been swallowed by this and also feasible a person could live if swallowed at the surface with a big gulp of air. It is possible that a person who's only this big could be swallowed in here and actually live for three days. Scientifically, it can be done. So. Interesting, huh? That that is a scientific possibility. But now we run into another thing. <laughs> Could a man survive for three days inside of a fish? Now this is talked about in the book of Jonah. It's also, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 12. Can a person survive three days inside of a fish? Uh, here it is, to look at the, I'm sorry, to look at the, here we go. Uh, the verse, it says, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, here's where people often have a problem again. Three days, three nights. 
How in the world could somebody be that long inside of a shark? Or in, even if it was a whale, how could they be that long? James Bartley was only 18 hours and he almost died in it. Well, to answer this question, because what we often do is we, we see this, we've translated from the Hebrew into the English and we've got three days and three nights, but often what we often do is a mistake. We will take our own time things, our modern technology and our modern thinking and apply it to biblical issues and their culture. This is a different culture. You've got to understand what it says when it says three days and three nights. You've got to go back to the culture of the Jews who was writing this, the Hebrew people. Um, so that's the most important thing to try and figure out how long. How, what I'm getting to is how many hours was he inside? Now, three days, three nights. Okay, does that mean it's like 72 hours? That's what we would think in our thinking today. But in Jewish time, it's different because their culture is different. So to understand this, let's think like the Hebrew people did in ancient time. A day to the ancient Jews, it began at sunset and went to the following sunset. That was one day. You probably have heard that before. That probably is not new to you. Um, the thing is, they didn't have clocks. They didn't have any type of timepieces like that that they kept. There were some sundials that date back into the time of um, Abraham. Actually, some Egyptians actually had some sundials. But what they often used to describe time, like we can't say, well, let's meet tonight at 5.30. That wouldn't mean anything to a Jew in ancient times. What's 5.30? Or let's meet at uh, 12.15. What's that? So they used phrases like during the third hour or during the fourth watch or the morning watch. They used phrases to describe time. Now, here's where it gets interesting. You ready? You're going to have to think on this one now. To be inside a fish for three days does not necessarily mean 72 hours. Mm -mm. It could be as little as 26 hours and still be called three days and three nights. Now, I should get your attention on that one. <laughs> How in the world can you do that? If an event happened, like Jonah being swallowed, the event starting just before sunset and ended after the sunset on the following day after, it could be that way. Now, I know I've confused you, so let me show you visually what I'm talking about. I've got a little chart here that I've color-coded. It's a three-day chart, day one, day two, day three. Day one, I put in red. Day two is in blue. Day three is in green. Now, remember, you got to throw out modern timekeeping. We're in ancient times, ancient culture. So, on day one, say it's a Monday, just out of curiosity. We just put Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I just threw it up there. Okay, it's sunrise. We're already in this day now. This day has started because it started sunset the following day. So, sunset over here, the day started. But we're still on this day. Now, sunrise. Afternoon goes by, say an hour before sunset, he gets swallowed. An hour before sunset, say sunset was at, say, 6 o'clock. 5 o'clock in the afternoon, he gets swallowed. To us, we think, well, it's just one hour. To the ancient Jews, they didn't look at it that way. He was in there for a day. That's the way they did time. He was in there for a day. Well, it was only one hour, but it still was just to them one day. And they would use the phrase because there was the day and there was the night before. They counted it as a day and a night. That's the way Hebrew people in ancient times did time. Now, if he was swallowed, say it's 5 o'clock, on Monday, we're in the red. Now, once sunset comes, instantly we're on the second day. Sunset comes, it goes through the night. Sunrise comes on Tuesday now. We're still on the second day. We go through the afternoon, still he's in, in there, the second day, and they would say a second day and night. Even though it's just one night, I mean, that's the way it was. Once sunset comes, six o'clock comes around, the sunset sets, now we start the third day, which I've put in green, and that happens at sunset. You notice now, as the evening goes, we go into sun, uh, Wednesday, at sunrise, maybe he was spit out here, we don't know. Or if he's spit out in the afternoon here, we don't know. But someplace in here, he would be spit out. Now, we would, you might be thinking, well, that doesn't still make sense. Okay, I see three days. you got three days, but it says three days and three nights. Where's the night? You're thinking with modern time. That's not the way they phrased it. Something could be just one day, a couple of hours in a day, and they would call it a day and a night. That's how, and we know this is like, this is the ancient culture, but this is the way that they wrote many of their books, not just biblical things. Many ancient writings are done like this. So, 
Have I totally confused you? <laughs> I hope by this chart you can understand. If you're swallowed on the, the red day, you're in there, that's one day, you're in there on the blue day, and then you come out on the green day, that's three days, they would just say, commonly they would phrase it as three days and three nights. This is not that odd um, for us. Have you ever wondered at Easter time, Jesus was in the tomb for three days and three nights? Remember that in Matthew 12, verse 40, the one I started with tonight, I said that Jesus was quoting a thing from Jonah, and he says, just as Jonas was in the belly of the whale, using the King James Version, three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the grave three days, three nights. Have you ever tried to figure out why we have Good Friday and then on Sunday morning? How did that get to be three days and three nights? It's using the Jewish time frame. So, what I just showed you, let's go to, I'm going to use the same chart. Now we're going to change it to the Easter story. Day one, day two, day three. On Friday, it's the exact same thing. That's why Jesus is making this parallel, because it's the same thing. On Friday, we know that Jesus was put on the cross early in the morning, around 9 o'clock. It says he died about 3. He was put in the tomb before sunset. That is specific in all four Gospels. He was in the tomb before sunset, thus he was in for a day and a night. That's just the way they phrased it. The next day comes. This is the Sabbath day. It's now the Saturday. So it's the Sabbath. Nobody was doing any work. They couldn't go and, and buy. Uh, the ladies couldn't go buy the stuff to anoint for the. Um, remember, they're going to come back on Sunday morning, try and get inside the tomb and anoint the body and stuff. But they couldn't on the day after because that's a Sabbath day. So nobody did anything on that day for that whole day. Once sunset came, now we're in another day, but now we've gone one day, two days. Sunday morning, it says specifically in all four Gospels that he arose early in the morning. So just right at sunrise, that's when he was resurrected. That's on the green set. So we have the three days, and we call it three days, three nights. Is the way that they've said that in Hebrew. I know it's different than what you're used to, but that's how the ancient culture was. So we often get messed up with this because we can't figure out um, what does it mean three days, three nights? And I remember as a kid actually sitting one time in a Sunday school class and I asked the question of my Sunday school teacher and he says, oh, we do it all wrong because Jesus was not crucified on a, on a Friday. He was crucified on a Wednesday. And I was like, huh? And he said, yeah, to get three days and three nights, you've got to be crucified on Wednesday. Then he's in the tomb all day on Thursday, all day Friday, and then he's there Saturday and he comes out the next morning uh, at sunrise. I was like, huh? But I've heard that more in one case now. I remember the first time I heard that, though, I was like, what? And so this is, though, how the Jews kept time. That's why it's so weird for us, because we use modern timekeeping and stuff like this to try and figure it out. But do you understand now? It's the same principle. What we saw with Jonah is the same thing that we see with Jesus at the Easter thing. Jesus was in the tomb three days. How do we know that? Three different colors. Pretty simple. When you understand the culture, this is really easy. It's when we try and answer this without thinking of the Hebrew culture. As one Hebrew scholar uh, recently wrote, he says, the Bible doesn't need to be rewritten. It needs to be reread. We don't understand things because we're not Jewish. And now, he wasn't saying, he was saying that of us because he's a Jewish rabbi who's a Christian, by the way. He's a Messianic Jew. And he says, you guys just got to read your New Testaments and stuff more carefully. But you have to understand Jewish culture. This was all written by Jews. And that's the way it works. So that's how that works. Now, as we're wrapping this up, I want to ask or get into one last thing here. If Jonah is inside of a fish like a megalodon, wouldn't that be a problem with hypothermia? Even if it's only like uh, 28 hours or something like that, or 30 hours, people die of hypothermia faster than that. So how about that? How would you answer that one? Well, that's a good question. First of all, if it was a sperm whale, no problem. Sperm whales, actually, he'd have the problem of being way too hot. Um, people who have been swallowed um, in these stories, if you read about James Bartley, he he um, was, they said he was so burned and everything afterwards by the gastric juice, but the temperature inside of a whale is extremely high. They have a hotter, uh, much higher body temperature than we do, and it would be like suffocating. James Bartley, according to this article, says it was right after he was swallowed, he was like just suffocating. The heat was so bad, he said. Now, whether that really happened or not, like I say, that's, um, 
immaterial at this point, but if it were a whale, whales are warm-blooded mammals, so that wouldn't be necessarily a problem then, um, be the problem being too hot. If Megalodon, if he was like a, a, a big shark, wouldn't that be a problem? Well, not really, because science back in, uh, marine biologists in the latter 1980s, early 1990s, started making some remarkable discoveries about sharks. In particular, great whites, makos, and a couple of others of these big carcarian type of sharks. By putting probes in them, they tag these things, they put a tag on them, they sometimes stuck internal probes in them and let them swim off and record everything on computers. They found out something fascinating about some, a few sharks. Great whites are one, makos another. They have a much elevated body temperature. They're not the same temperature. Like most fish, if you go outside here, you catch a fish, test the internal temperature, it's the same as the water outside. We incorrectly call that cold-blooded. That's not really a good term for that. But you get the idea. Whatever their temperature is, it's the same as the outside temperature that they're in. Certain sharks are not like that. Their body temperature could be 10, 12 degrees higher. It's still a mystery. We're not sure exactly why or how that happens. It's still being studied. But if Megalodon was in, it seems like a relative of a great white. We know great whites are like this. It seems feasible that the body temperature could be high enough that he would not experience hypothermia and die from that. But we have other problems. What would the side effects be if a person swallowed by a whale or a carcharodon, megalodon? Um, well, <laughs> as we said, there's gastric juice. According to James Bartley's story, if you go back and you read this, he, was, he came out when, they, when he regained consciousness and got his wits back to him. It took about three, three weeks or so. Uh, I could imagine it would probably take me longer <laughs> if I got swallowed by something like that trying to get back to duty. Um, but it says that he was um, burned all over his body. The acid burns all through his skin, scarred his skin. It says that he was scarred permanently. His, also, his skin was bleached white, according to the articles. Um, that it was bleached white because of the melanocytes, the cells that make your pigment, they were destroyed by the gastric juice because they're just under the epidermis in the dermal area in, in there. And so they got destroyed by the gastric juice. He lost all of his hair. According to this, he was bald the rest of his life. I believe, according to the article, he lived about 12 years after this. Um, but that would be part of the problem because we're talking about uh, chemicals that break down protein. And basically, we are protein. Hair, well, Hair, <laughs> can't use my own example. Hair is almost pure protein. It's keratin, a lot of protein. Skin, a lot of protein. So these are chemicals that gastric juice works on. So if that was to happen, uh, the digestive juices and the acids would denature the hair on the body. So Jonah would have little hair if he was in there for that, even like, the, like we said, um, 32 hours. Probably most of his hair would have been off his body and consumed by the... Uh, the enzymes uh, making him bald. Also, his skin would be permanently affected. He would be permanently scarred. Uh, we know this for, for a fact because I have actually seen myself gastric juice burns, and I've seen hydrochloric acid burns on people. Um, it does make, in some cases, permanent scarring. That does happen at times. Um, so he would be scarred, probably bleached white, um, is what the descriptions are, and it's very feasible because it is hydrochloric acid which is very powerful acid. And on this page here, just taking out of a, a, a first aid book talking about these burns, it causes skin burns, um, scarring, facial burns, um, photosensitive uh, after this period of time, eye contact, the person, like it said in James Bartley's case, he had problems seeing the rest of his life. Some people get totally, if they get this in their eyes, they, they lose their eyesight. So there's a lot of problems with being burned like this. And just to show you a couple of pictures here, if the melanocytes are denatured or broken down and are no longer functioning, uh, that's how you bleach people. Um, but this on the picture here I'm showing on the right is a person who has been bleached. This is a person of dark color, yet you can see the light area on the skin. This is a hydrochloric acid burn. Um, over here, today we have people who are actually bleaching their skin. Uh, I've got a picture here of the late Michael Jackson. I know you never thought you'd hear Michael Jackson's name in a book study on Jonah, but it's a great example. This is him as a, when he was younger, like as a teenager, but in his latter years, you notice he bleached his skin. Uh, Beyonce, if you take a look at Beyonce, earlier pictures of Beyonce to what she looks like today, her skin has been bleached. People do this. Uh, matter of fact, one of my friends on Facebook, um, when I was talking about this with someone the other day, they were saying, yeah, they went and got their skin bleached. <laughs> I was like, why? Um, but I guess they wanted to get their skin a little bit lighter. Um, you can, by chemicals, you can bleach skin. Acids will do this if they break down the melanocyte skin, uh, the cells that make the pigment. So Jonah, if 
this all happened, which I believe, well, I definitely believe it happened. What animal caused it, that's what's up for question. But it is scientifically possible that a person could have been swallowed by a fish, be inside by the Jewish uh, time scale of three days, three nights, and come out and still be alive. That is not an impossibility. It does not necessarily even have to be a miracle of God. It could have been something just by nature. So these people who say don't believe in the Bible because of this verse, well, it's not necessarily a miracle. I mean, it could have been. It could have been God created a special fish just for this. We don't know. But for what's out in the oceans today, it is quite feasible for this to happen. And the reason I'm making a big point of what Jonah would look like I think it plays an important role in the way this book ends because this guy no longer looks normal. Um, we'll get into that as we get further into the chapter because remember, he causes a revival to happen in the most heathen city in the world. Why would all these people change just because some Jewish or this Hebrew uh, prophet comes in and starts preaching a sermon? Why would that make the, even the king of Nineveh change? I think this has something to do with it. So with that, we're out of time here tonight, and we're going to go ahead and close. And then uh, we'll come back to this, though. When we get, get towards the end of this in chapter 4, I do believe that what happened to Jonah affected his appearance, and it makes a major difference in the way that this book turns out. But let's close. Father, we thank you so much for this time, and I just ask, Lord, that you add to everyone's faith in here tonight. And, and Lord, it's amazing, these creatures you've, that you have created, and it just boggles my mind about the infinite knowledge that you have uh, of the biology and how you designed everything so beautifully and so perfect. And Lord, we just ask that you would just keep everybody safe and keep us all healthy as we go through this now coming into the flu season here, Lord, and that next week, well, next week we won't be meeting, Lord, but the week after, that, Lord, we'd be able to, to come back and, and learn more from this fantastic and amazing book that you have given us. And we thank you for the treats we have tonight also. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give and help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you'd like to hear Michael live, you can check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org. And on that note, this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode. <laughs>